0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's give our attention to it. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Is it not working? I'm just that loud. Yeah. No, you just responded. Oh, maybe I just didn't turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I missed a week, so I I forgot how to turn this thing on. Well, I received a, a phone call a couple of weeks ago from a dear saint at uh, the church I used to minister uh, in in Montana. And he was uh, telling me about his wife. This was a dear, dear couple. And uh, they're an elderly couple. They're in their 80s. And uh, she had had a fall. She was hanging up a picture up on a wall. She fell backwards. She hit her head. Uh, Initially, they just put ice on it, gave her some rest. But she started to have some uh, issues with uh, mobility and speech a few days later. And so they took her to uh, the hospital. And they did a CAT scan, and they discovered that she had bleeding on the brain. And she needed uh, immediate surgery, but unfortunately there was not a qualified surgeon there at uh, that hospital. So they had to transfer her to a hospital in Billings where there was a qualified neurosurgeon, a very qualified one. And he uh, operated on her. He reported that everything went well. However, he said that she was not responding uh, to the surgery that he, that in the way that he would expect. And sadly for her family and her friends, she went home to be with the Lord. Now, I can hear her voice. If she was here, she would say, This is exactly what the Lord wanted for me, and this is exactly what I want. As she loved the Lord. She believed in him. She is in perfect peace right now uh, in in his presence. Uh, However, what we see from that is that just because you have somebody qualified, it doesn't mean they're going to be successful. And what we saw last time we were in Hebrews is we have a qualified high priest. He's more than qualified. But is he successful? Can he be trusted? Or is there something lacking in his high priestly work that requires us to contribute? Maybe some of our righteousness. Maybe some of our merits. Maybe some of our work. Can he be fully trusted because what's at stake is not just earthly life, but eternal life? Our eternal souls are at stake. Well, our passage today tells us that not only is He qualified, He's also successful 100% of the time. And we're going to see three reasons we can be sure that Jesus always succeeds as our high priest. And the first is this, is that He was heard by God. In verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save his soul or to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So, first, we notice the context of our Lord's high priestly ministry. It's in the days of his flesh. Flesh is just a way of saying his flesh and blood, his humanity. The time when he was here on earth. He always is going to be in our own humanity. But this specifically refers to when he was on earth. And this is something that the author of Hebrews has really been focusing on. That the Son of God assumed our humanity because this is an issue that these Jews have. God would become a man, would become lower than the angels for a while. That was hard for them to swallow, But the author of Hebrews is saying this was necessary if we were going to be saved. He would have to put on our own humanity. And what did he do in the days of his flesh while he was on earth? Well, it says he offered up prayers and supplications, which is exactly what you would expect a high priest to do, offer up prayers and supplications. But these prayers were of a specific sort. They had a particular manner to them. They were accompanied with loud cries and tears. This indicates great and intense suffering. And we see that this is indeed the case because these particular prayers of Jesus focused on deliverance from death. It says that he made these tears with loud, these prayers with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. Now, this is particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, but it's more than that because it says the days of his flesh, not just the day of the cross. See, Jesus was a man of sorrows. His whole life was one of suffering. That's how he was characterized. That Jesus is crying out to God with loud cries and tears shows that he was a true human. These weren't fake tears. He was a true man like you and I in every way except for sin. He really did suffer and call out to God to deliver him from the suffering of death that he was destined to face. Now, why would Jesus cry out to be delivered from death? Isn't it the case that we are to not fear death? Didn't Jesus himself say, don't fear the one who can destroy the body? Well, Jesus' death even though it was the most torturous physical death, encompassed a lot more. He was going to face the wrath of God. Jesus did not fear man who could destroy the body, but rather the one who could destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus was going to face the infinite wrath of God. Hell on the cross. Truly more than what any finite sinner can handle, And yet, finite sinners must endure forever. Because once that person's in hell, that's it. It's not merely a lifetime, a thousand years or a million years. That's it. There's no hope for a better tomorrow. No mercy. It will never end. That's the infinite wrath of God. If sinners truly understood the wrath of God, they would tremble and crawl out too. The problem is sinners are too busy suppressing the truth and unrighteousness about the coming judgment so that they can continue to enjoy their sin without an afflicted conscience. As Moses says in Psalm 90, verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and and your wrath according to the fear of you? Well, Jesus did. And He responded the right way. Calling out, crying out, Now, the question is, why did he call out for deliverance from death when he knew he was going to have to face it anyway? Well, we have to remember first that Christ was a true human. While he is true God, he's also true man. And Jesus had a human will in addition to a divine will. And in his human will, he did not want to face the wrath of God. Remember, suffering is part of the curse. The whole creation groans longing for the day it's delivered from the curse. Well, Jesus was going to face the curse in full. He's going to suffer God's anger. It really is truly pious not want to face the wrath of God when you understand it. However, our text says that Christ was heard by God. God answered his prayer for deliverance from death. But how can it say that when Jesus still died. He still faced the cross. Well, God did not deliver Christ from death, but out of death. That is, He was raised from the dead. As Psalm 16 says, He did not allow His soul to see corruption in the grave. Three days later, He rose again. He conquered death. And even though Christ knew this would happen, that He would be raised... Yet we still see Him exercise means, the the means of prayer, even fervent prayer and calling out and crying out to God. So God's sovereignty is not mutually exclusive with the exercise of means. And Scripture says that the reason Christ was heard was because of His reverence. Now this could be translated as piety. Uh, This word for reverence means fear that leads to great caution. And religiously, it means to have such great reverence for God that it causes you to walk carefully before Him. And this is what Jesus did perfectly. And on this basis, God heard Him. Now, why does it say that God heard Him on this basis? Well, remember that Christ was the last Adam. Christ came to fulfill the covenant of works, of do this and live, be righteous in order to be accepted with God perfectly perpetually obey and you will gain eternal life you will not die but live forever and the reason why Jesus did not die forever but was raised again from the dead after bearing the curse of the covenant of works is because he perfectly obeyed it part of that perfect righteousness is reverence is piety before God this is why he was heard. As Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, how many of you have read that verse and become and became afraid? Ooh, man, in order to be heard from in order for God to hear me, I can't cherish sin in my heart. I need to make sure I'm not cherishing sin in my heart. And of course, we need to make sure we're not cherishing sin in our heart. We need to be repenting of sin. But do we do that perfectly? As long as we have this as long as we're in this body of death, we're gonna have sin in our hearts. We are going to, in a degree with our old self, cherish sin that's never going to be done away with until we're perfected in heaven. We need to be constantly putting that to death, but there is somebody that did it perfectly. What this verse ultimately is about is about Christ. Christ did not cherish sin in his heart. Christ, because of his reverence and perfect purity, was heard by God. And, beloved, the reason we are heard by God is because of his reverence because of our high priest's purity, because of His piety. This is why when we pray, we pray in whose name? Jesus' name. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Is it uh, just a formality? I just say it because it's like a kind of like a, a magical formula, like a charm, like the pagans do. No, we pray in His name because we're acknowledging His righteousness. We're acknowledging His merits. We're acknowledging His, His perfection. I cannot be heard by God on the basis of any merits I have. Rather, I have a high priest. And he is perfect. And he merited everything I need to gain access to God. And so we pray in his name. This is why we are heard. Now, this does not mean that God will always say yes to our prayers. James 4 says that when we pray for things uh, to sinfully spin on our, on our own sinful pleasures, that God is gracious to deny that request. However, this does not mean that we were denied access to Him. We have always act, We always have access to Him because of the righteousness, purity, and perfection of our great high priest. He was heard. Because of His reverence. And there's a tendency in our hearts, beloved, to not only indulge in sinful pleasures, but also in self-righteousness. I think that's probably one of the more blinding sins. Our own self-righteousness. And it comes in the form of, of pietism, where we are legalistically pious, where we exalt our piety beyond what it really should be, where we think we are more pious than we actually are. We add laws, we add different things that God's word doesn't require. For example, Lent. Why there's even a growing uh, interest in Protestant circles in Lent. It kind of serves as a security blanket to have observable, measurable, and demonstrable piety. I did this for 40 days, I know I am okay. It, It feels like we're pious And while we are to pursue true and biblical piety, yet the reason we are heard and accepted by God, the reason we have bold and confident access before Him is not because of our reverence, not because of our piety, but because of His. In fact, we need to even go to Him in order to ask Him to help us to be more pious. I'm not pious. I'm not as holy as I should be. God, would you please grant that to me? Praise be to God that we're not heard because of our holiness. Because if that was the case, we would never be heard. It's because of His. So He indeed did succeed as our high priest and always lives to make intercession for us and requires none of our righteousness to supplement His And this brings us to the second reason we can be sure that Jesus will always succeed as our high priest. And that's because of his obedience. Verse 8, and this is kind of overlapped and and, uh, related to the the first point, but verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I want us to first notice the concessive statement here. Remember Schoolhouse Rock? Is that schoolhouse rock around anymore? Or am I just old? Someone just someone said you're just old. Okay. Um although although he was a son. This expresses a contrast or something that is contrary. Right? The word although. So, although she had stage fright, she got on stage. And remembered her lines. Although he could not swim, he jumped in the lake. See how that works? There's a a concessive statement here. It's it's contrary to what you would expect. It it, it would be different to say, because he could not swim, he jumped in the lake. Uh, That would uh, just completely change the the sense of uh, that sentence. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up to point out that this verse says, although he was a son, he learned obedience, not because he was a son, he learned obedience. Why do I bring that up? Well, there's a teaching in recent years that says the son is obedient to the father eternally. Because he is son. He's obedient. The reason he is called son is because he obeys the father is what this teaching says. The reason that just as an earthly son obeys his earthly father, because the earthly father has more authority than the earthly son. They say that this is the way it is within the Godhead, within the Trinity, between father and son. This is referred to as EFS, which stands for Eternal Functional Subordination. Sometimes it's referred to as E-R-A-S, Eternal Relations of Authority and Submission. That the relationship within the Trinity is one of authority, the Father has authority, and submission, the Son submits eternally. The key word is eternal. They say that the Father is Father is called Father in the Trinity because He has authority over His Son within the Godhead from all eternity. The Son has less authority and submits to uh, the Father. If you have read any contemporary marriage books, you've probably been taught this. You've probably read this. Uh, Men like Wayne Grudem, John Piper, Bruce Ware, and women like Martha Peace have all taught this. Uh, Bruce Ware, who's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes this in his book on the Trinity. He says this, The Father alone stands supreme over His very Son. All praise of the Son ultimately and rightly redounds to the glory of the Father. It is the Father, then, who is supreme in the Godhead. The Father is supreme over all. Particularly, He is supreme within the Godhead as the highest authority and the one deserving ultimate praise. The reason they think this way is because they interpret the words father and son to mean that the father has more authority than the son, just like an earthly father and son, even though they aren't consistent, and and also say that him being the father means that he's older than the son. Uh, Nevertheless, they take uh, what's of the earth and they apply it to within the Trinity. Well, just as the Father has more authority than the Son on earth, and the Son submits to His Father, that's the way it is within uh, the Trinity. However, if this was the case, then our verse would say, because He is a Son, He learned obedience. However, our verse says, although He was a Son, He learned obedience. It's concessive. Obedience is a contrary thing to the Son in Himself. We have to avoid this very serious and really pervasive now Trinitarian error that says the Son eternally submits to the Father by paying closer attention to what Scripture says. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They are equal in power, authority, and glory. Because the Son is God, all that God is, the Son is. If the Son is God, then all that God is, the Son is. The Son is called the Son, and the Father is called the Father, because the Son is eternally begotten of the Father where the Father shares His entire essence, including all authority, with His Son. It's a mystery that we cannot fully understand. But the Son is true and full God, equal in glory, majesty, authority through the Father and Spirit. So then what do we say about the Son learning obedience? What do we say about the incidents in Scripture where it says, The son himself is subject to God. Well, this is not pertaining to his divine nature as God, but according to his human nature as man. This is why scripture says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. The obedience pertains to the human nature he assumed and not of his eternal essence, not of his divine nature. Nevertheless, because Jesus is one person, not two, one person with two natures inseparably united in one person, scripture could say that it was the Son who learned obedience, even though it's understood that it's according to his human nature. Now, what does it mean for the Son to learn obedience? Well, it does not mean the way it means for us, where we go from disobedience to greater obedience. If that was the case, the way the scripture would put it would be, he learned to obey. But that's actually not what it says. Rather, it says he learned obedience. Uh, Within the context of this verse, although he was a son, this means that by taking upon himself a human nature, he has an experience in his humanity that he does not have in his divine nature. Really, this means to experience something. In a human body, as a man, as a creature, according to his humanity, he is experiencing submission and obedience. This is what learning obedience means. To experience or to know by experience. For example, some of you can relate to this. When I laid eyes on my first child, as she was coming out, I can say I knew a father's love. I learned what it is to love like a father. Someone could tell me about it and I wouldn't doubt them, but now I know. I learned it by experiencing it. Uh, Some of our children have to uh, learn by experiencing it. We call it learning the hard way. Some adults are like that still. We tell our children, don't touch that. Hot, big ouchy No, no. And we hope that they understand sometimes they have to learn the hard way. One of our children had to learn the hard way once. Had a glass fireplace cover with the fireplace going on. And this child decided to go up and touch it. Got a big ouchie. But that child learned by experiencing, learned the hard way. Well, this is how Jesus learned obedience. He experienced obedience and submission, something that he did not ever do in eternity past according to his divine nature. Although he was a son, he learned Obedience, and this verse says that he learned this through what he suffered. He experienced suffering. This is the kind of obedience he had—one of suffering the curse of the law his whole life for us, culminating at the cross in obeying the law for us. He was tested and tried in ways that we will never experience or have ever experienced. Hungry in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. But these sufferings were necessary for our salvation. Verse 9, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We talked about what it means for Christ to be made perfect when we were considering Hebrews uh, 2.10. It doesn't mean that he went from less moral to more moral. Rather, it's talking about completion of a work. Reformer David Dixon puts it well where he says, uh, Christ, though perfect in his person, lacked something to make him perfect in his office till he suffered. He had to suffer in order to save us. He had to bear the curse in full in order for us to be saved. He had a work to finish, and when he had finished it, he cried out, It is finished. And that is what is meant by being made perfect. And so when He was made perfect as our Savior, when He completed the work to save us, He became the source of eternal salvation. Christ is the source of eternal salvation. He alone provides salvation, provides it in full. And our our verse says it's eternal. When you come to Christ in faith, you are saved forever. Not Not temporarily. Not you need to keep yourself, but you're saved forever to the utmost. Now, this verse says that he saves those who obey him. Does this mean that our salvation is dependent on our obedience? Maybe in part. Could we say that? Well, if this is the case, then this would mean that it goes something like this. Christ agrees to save us. So long as we are obeying him. Uh, He he saves those who are determined to obey him and start down that path. And Christ looks and says, ah, you are savable. You are somebody I can save now. Or is this teaching that Christ does his part in initially saving us, but we must do our part in obeying him to make it to heaven in the end? And the answer is no. This can be understood in two ways. Uh, First, this obedience is not obedience to the law, but obedience to the call of the gospel. When the crowd asked Jesus in John 6, what works must we do to be doing the works of God? What did Jesus tell them? Well, here's a bunch of works for you to do. No, he said, here's the work of God. Like, okay, we're ready to do work. What is that work? Believe on the Son. Well, that doesn't involve my works. That sounds so boring. That's nothing for me to do but to trust the work of another. Jesus says, Yes, exactly. It's actually harder for us to not work and trust the work of another than for us to do it ourselves. But in obeying Jesus, We don't trust our own works. We trust that He did it all for us. It could be understood in that way. It could also be understood in this way. Uh, It's referring uh, to... It's describing those who have been saved. Uh, Those who are saved by Christ are not saved only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Sin is no longer the master of those who have been saved by Christ. While sin will certainly continue to rage, it no longer reigns in the believer. Uh, While we will continue to struggle and have certain sins that more easily snag us, no sin is our master because we've been delivered from sin by by being united to Christ. Now that's not always our experience. And when we find ourselves struggling with sin and kind of uh, even temporarily enslaved to a sin, even as believers. Uh, One of the, well, the key, the way out, is to remember and believe the gospel, which not only includes that we're forgiven, but that we're also delivered from sin's dominion. That's where Paul goes. Paul says, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. And then he talks about how we've been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. So that sin truly is no longer our master. We need to believe that reality in order to experience it, but it's always true of the believer, no matter what the experience is. So this is not prescriptive, but this is descriptive. It's those who are characterized by the beginnings of obedience because they've been delivered uh, by sin or by, by Christ from sin. Uh, however, even this obedience is part of our salvation, being delivered from sin's power is one way in which Christ is the source of our eternal salvation. So this is another way that he reveals himself to be a completely successful high priest. A third reason we can be sure that Jesus will always succeed as our high priest is disappointment. And you are not going to believe how fast this point is. You're going to say, wow, that's a record. Now that I talked it up, you're going to be disappointed. But verse 10, being designated by God, A high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ has been designated or appointed by God as our high priest. If God designated him to this office, who can go against it? And this designation is after the order of Melchizedek. Remember, Melchizedek is the type of Christ's priesthood where it has no beginning, no end. It's based on a sworn oath. It's not the Levitical priesthood where one priest dies and gets replaced one after another. Christ's priesthood goes on forever. This was sworn by God in the covenant of redemption before time began. A God who cannot lie and break his oath. So Christ has succeeded. It's guaranteed by an oath. His priesthood goes on forever. He cannot fail us. Therefore, he is our high priest forever. Nothing will ever change that. And as such, as Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to him. He will never fail us. He perfectly, completely, and always succeeds, beloved, as our great high priest. We can fully rest in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to trust him. It's... uh, it's easy to say we trust Him until a trial happens. But We often don't pay attention until something happens or it particularly applies to us. And so we do pray that we're not just lax, but we're actually trusting Him. I grow our trust, grow our faith. Thank you that we're heard because of Him and His piety. And this is why we pray in His name. Amen. We turn now. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.